This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, and welcome to the Late Late Show on this very late Monday night. Tonight we are talking to M, who is a qualified Senko, but currently just a classroom teacher, so we can hear her unique perspective on classroom teachers and inclusion and whole school inclusion and how we are supposed to manage all of that at once. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. So, good evening and happy Monday. <laughs> we are here with M, who is a qualified Senko, but M has a bit of an interesting story. So she's got a unique perspective on this SEN inclusion business and how it affects schools, how it affects individual classroom teachers, the role of the SENCO within the whole school, how SENCOs can work with, with classroom teachers, and how different educators in within a particular school, including LSAs, TAs, and, and everyone else can work together to try and support all, stu- all students, really. So um, I've asked them to join us because of her SENCO slash classroom teacher perspective and I think she she has what a lot of classroom teachers like myself don't have I've got I've got extensive classroom experience I've worked in pastoral for many many years but I am absolutely not <laughs> I've never been a member of, of um, the learning support or, or SEN department in any school and she also even while being a Senko has consistently been a classroom teacher which is not the case for many people who hold that position. So she's got a, 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 not a unique, but a a rare insight into how we all can can work together and try to to do what's best for all of our students. So, Em, are you there? Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me on the show this evening. Lovely. If you could just make sure your microphone's quite close to your mouth, because you're a little bit quiet on my end anyway. Thank you. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience and and um, how long you've been in education? Yeah, so I've been in education for 13 years. I started out as an English teacher and I was really passionate about supporting students with um, SEN needs and decided to become a Senko. So I was a Senko for five years whilst teaching English and media at my previous school. And then I moved to the East Midlands and became a time English teacher. All right, lovely. And what what inspired you to become a Senko? If you were if you were a a teacher for for many years before going through that entire process, you must have had a particular motivation or a particular drive, because I, I can imagine that qualifying for that role is, is not an easy task that, that anyone would do lightly. I think for me, um, supporting SEN students to achieve their potential is an absolutely amazing opportunity to actually promote inclusion within a school and to make it at the forefront of of the school is one thing that I was extremely passionate about. And also having SND um, needs myself growing up, um, having dyslexia and ADHD made me really want to create an inclusive environment for all students really, and just be able to um, make inclusion a part of the ethos of any school, but also make it about supporting everyone's needs. Okay, so you mentioned, thank you for that. So you mentioned that you have um, some personal experience in, in school that I suppose, I suppose similar to to my guest on, on the last show, maybe, because um, I know you listened to that one as well with, with Amy when we were talking about neurodivergent educators. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that 
obviously comes from a personal place and maybe there is a bit of a, a, a personal connection with particular students or a personal drive to maybe help those students in ways that perhaps you were were or were not helped when you were younger is is, is any of that the case yeah i think so i think growing up um at, growing up in secondary school and being an able student i was always able to create my own strategies for being able to you know get get through and i think if i had a diagnosis of dyslexia and had an had a diagnosis of um, ADHD sooner, then, you know, I may have been entitled to some support. And it was about those factors that actually uh, made me think about, well, as an educator, what, what can I do in my classroom to be able to support these learners, but also uh, make sure that it was taken on board by staff members to not only just see um, SEN as you know, not a separate divide from being in school, but actually, you know, this is what we are here for is to support all of the learners and not seeing it as an add on to something we have to do to just fill in a tick box exercise sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And it definitely feels that way. It definitely does feel that way sometimes. So yeah, thank you for sharing. And I think, I think having that personal drive really, and that personal experience with the issues is so important being able to relate to students on that particular level and, and learning from, I guess, your own life experiences that maybe were less than ideal. You mentioned that you, you when you were younger, possibly didn't get the support that you, you could have or indeed should have had that might have made a difference for you. So I can imagine that that comes into your mind, it would come into my mind quite frequently. It comes into my mind, I mean, I think constantly of my teachers in school and the ways that my I mean, I, I don't have a, you know, lifelong hatred for my, any of my schools by any stretch, but I do often think about their, their, um, their faults and, and the ways that they could have been improved and they could have supported different students and myself um, better. So I imagine that that's quite a, an important drive to have, I guess. So I, it was you. definitely it was definitely an important drive um, to have. However, um, thinking about 10 to 15 years ago, um, the accessibility and the knowledge and the research that have has been, um, you know, founded and the the funding that has gone into SEN and the importance of understanding that all students are entitled to the best education they can possibly have is, you know, to make sure that we are fulfilling those children's potential is exactly what we're is what we're here for and. Uh, making sure that we're meeting their needs and reasonable and just um, reasonable adjustments in education. Yeah, absolutely. So with, with all of that said about why it's so personal to you and, and the ways that it matter and, and what you're hoping to achieve and, and, and what's inspired you on your, on your educator journey, which sounds so, so, so twee. Um, why did you stop being a Senko? What was it that led you to go back to being a good old bog standard classroom teacher? <laughs> oh, good old bog standard teacher. Like, <laughs> Just for, like me. <laughs> for all the teachers who are listening tonight thinking that they're all bog standards. Um, <laughs> well, um, the, the thing is uh, about teaching, um, as cringy as it may sound, you're all superheroes in, in your own way, shape or form. And I think um, as a Senko, to be able to provide, to, pre to be able to provide the toolkits um, for teachers and to be able to learn and understand the needs of, to, su to support students um, is incredible. And luckily enough, in my last school, I was working in um, London for six years, being able to make a massive difference within within the school and the local authority and to be able to work with some absolutely brilliant people and have a really supportive SLT behind me uh, enabled me to do that. It depends on the location, the setting, the teachers, the parents and, you know, creating that holistic environment for those students. And I was very lucky to do it. And I would never say never about being a Senko again at all. I think moving from the 
environment of London to the East Midlands, I really wanted to think about what I wanted. And I get asked this question a lot, really. Why am I not a Senko now? What is the, what is it that is, you know, made me want to go back to being a, a full-time teacher? And the fact is about being with those students full-time, um, what it is that drives me is is working in the classroom with students. And as a Senko, um, your workload is never finished. And I know being a teacher, my workload is never finished, but it's really challenging up to 60, 70 hours a week, um, sometimes as a Senko and knowing that your to-do list is never done and are you doing enough and budgets and fundings. And, and sometimes it, it could be absolutely exhausting and just realizing, am I happy in what I'm doing? Yes, yeah. for the first three three years, four years, yes, it, it was. But then thinking about what I want, um, I mean, I'm in my early 30s and I just wanted to think, is this what I want? And for me, it was a case of thinking, do I want to stick with the Senko route or did I want to, you know, develop a curriculum and to, um, you know, develop something? So in my current school I'll be setting up um media which is something I've been very passionate about and and teaching English so I wanted to go in a different direction of my profession and do and explore um, the curriculum and you know do that really that's why yeah no I I understand I mean I was a head of year for eight eight years I think and it's 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 just overwhelming and it gets to the point where <clears throat> your your emails and your paperwork and your phone calls and the admin and the it just you feel like you actually spend less time with the kids in the way that you want to even though that position's supposed to help you do that it's 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 paradoxical and incredibly frustrating so yeah i i get the wanting to just be back in the classroom and being able to well to try to apply what you've learned in a particular role to a classroom setting so how do you think being how do you think you bring your senko experience into the classroom with you now oh so as a senko um understanding the needs of the children so for example uh, cognition and learning is one of the area of needs and the majority of students um where i teach it's moderate learning difficulties and to be able to um adapt to meet the needs of those students and we've got a really fantastic Zenko um, at my school who I've never seen work harder than anybody I mean all Senkos and support staff in any school are absolutely fantastic and without them um, would be in trouble so to be able to support learners in the classroom is all about adaptability having those relationships with them and understanding how to support them through different resources through through the curriculum and accessibility really and also making sure that learners with SEMH needs are and a really good pastoral system to support you it is mm -hmm. there and you know understanding their pupil passports and what they need and how you're able to support them within the lesson is is paramount However, there are obviously a lot of challenges with that. And I think that comes mm -hmm. to the actual uh, podcast title itself. Yeah. Uh, if you want a reminder, um, yeah. what that is. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. So I think your, your interesting experiences and choices and how you're able to bring your um, knowledge of SEN students and, and how to support them into the classroom is, is what we want to talk about. But I just, I just think it's funny because you were, you just talked about how, how the um, the Senko at your school works so hard and no one's ever worked harder. And I, I had a conversation with another Senko recently, um, and mentioned uh, this this episode and and said, you know, oh, I'm doing this show on you know supporting SEN students, and I've been told that that a Senko is 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 the worst job, and that not by you, not anyone who's <laughs> listening, 
not by M, <laughs> just to say for the record, she did not say this. Somebody else said, oh, being a Senko is, is the worst job in the school, hands down, it's the worst thing. And I said this to the Senko I was speaking to, and she just looked at me and just nodded. <laughs> so, yeah, but in fairness, I feel like, I feel like the only job in education that's not the worst job in the school is a PE teacher. I think uh, I think we all feel like we have the worst job in the school. I certainly felt that in pastoral anyway. Um, so in a moment, we are going to discuss M's experiences and, and how that feeds into her classroom practice and specific issues that come up supporting SEN learners, um, specific difficulties that... that um, teachers might have and and how we can hopefully work with the learning support department, SEN department, and um, do a little bit better than we're all than we're all currently doing and as we are all constantly trying to do. So um, listeners, if you have any contributions to any of this, feel free to call in. I see some people um, who are who are listening, who are watching right now on Podbean. So if you have any messages you want to send in, anything, um, any top tips, any questions that our resident former Senko can answer, feel free to send those in. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR. Two three two four for twenty percent off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit EatonX.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Ofsted finds itself in the news again as inspections paused for two-week period to allow inspectors to undertake mental health awareness training begin again on the 22nd of January. ITV News shared the results of a survey of almost 2,000 school leaders which showed that 97% support the removal of single word judgments. The survey, carried out by NAHT Union, followed the outcome of the inquest into the death of Ruth Perry. The union has urged Ofsted to implement a number of changes, including a mechanism for school leaders to halt an inspection where an inspector's conduct falls below standards, extending the notice period schools receive for inspection, and asking them to revert to a process, however temporarily, of ungraded inspections similar to those conducted during the pandemic. Meanwhile, the BBC reports that Ofsted has apologised fully for the first time for the role it played in Ruth Perry's death. The apology came at the same time as Ofsted responded to the coroner's prevention of future deaths notice. In the PFD response, new Ofsted chief Sir Martin Oliver said, such tragedies should never happen again, and that he apologised sincerely for the part inspection played in her death. Since the death of Mrs Perry, Schools judged as inadequate on safeguarding alone are now re-inspected within three months. Ofsted also changed its confidentiality rules to allow heads to speak to colleagues, family, friends and health professionals about outcomes of inspections before the report is actually published. The Department for Education has committed to working with Ofsted to review things during a consultation in the spring, which it is calling the Big Listen. Education unions praised Ofsted's positive steps, but said they were only the beginning. 
The weather has been front and centre of the news this week, with schools across parts of Wales and Scotland being forced to close due to snow. Icy conditions and weather warnings made for tricky travel and forced school closures in areas badly affected. For those concerned that the post-pandemic impact of remote learning would mean the end of snow days, pictures on social media and local news proved that this was not always the case. But anyone worried that the icy blasts will last can be assured that the weather is set to return to normal over the next few days. Authors, including Sir Michael Morpogo and Mallory Blackman, have written an open letter urging the government to invest in early years reading. According to a Book Trust survey, only half of children between one and two from low-income families are read to daily, with some families struggling to access books and being in need of support. The letter from authors is addressed to both Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Labour leader Sakir Starmer and says it is not right that children from poorer backgrounds are deprived of a life rich in reading. Sir Michael Mopogo is president of the Charity Book Trust and helped launch their new campaign Get Reading to support disadvantaged children in family reading. He spoke on BBC Radio 4's Today programme saying that the younger that children are introduced to the power of stories, the better chance there is of putting them on an extraordinary pathway of knowledge, understanding and empathy. He also said that books need to be free at the point of delivery, like the health service. A DFE spokesperson said, We are committed to raising literacy for children. But Sir Michael said that these efforts are clearly not enough. Finally, The Guardian features an article which looks at research in America that appears to show that children learn better on paper than on screens. The research follows headlines across the pond which focused on the nationwide collapse in reading scores among American youths, citing a four-point drop in the comprehension skills of 13-year-olds, falling below skill levels of 1971 for the worst-performing students. Politicians appear to be assigning blame to the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns, with remote learning being labelled as bad for students by the Biden administration. Others blame teachers who they say lobbied for lockdowns. However, the article itself focuses on a new study by neuroscientists at Columbia University's Teachers College, which appears to show there is a clear advantage to reading a text on paper rather than on a screen because it leads to what they describe as deeper reading. A sample of 59 children aged 10 to 12 were asked to complete a series of tasks, which led researchers to conclude that we should not yet throw away printed books and shouldn't rely on the digital revolution just yet. Further details can be read on the Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Okay, so lots to think about in that last news, news, news bite. Um, I talked about that story with my with my year seven form last week, and they were confused about how that was possible. They couldn't understand how their phones weren't the magic solution to all of their problems. But there we are. All right, um, so <clears throat> I just want to. St- Start, I think, rather than going into specific classroom solutions, um, or as if, I'm talking as if you're the wizard that's going to solve all our problems, um, rather than going into specific, you know, questions and hypotheticals and solutions in the classroom, what does a truly inclusive school look like? Like, what in your experience should be the experiences of SEN students? What do you think? The experience of it. Hello. Sorry. Yeah, we can hear you now. That's fine. Hi, Carry on. All right. Nice one. Um, what is the ideal world for an SEN student? Um, to me, I think for any student, but particularly SEN students, is to have small classes, being able to choose and support their learning through an individualized approach and to be able to have access to um, 
different types of qualifications. So a one size that does not fit all mm -hmm. approach is is the way forward. So students are able to have a personalized learning plan that they can achieve through throughout the education system and to be able mm -hmm. to go on and to succeed. But that's a that's a dream world really when it comes to <laughs> yeah. um, comes to education because for any student any student they are pushed through an education system where in key stage three they are doing <coughs> subjects and predominantly are in sets um and they are not able to um have that breadth of support available to them and therefore having 32 children um in a classroom and a teacher having to meet all the needs of those learners can be in fact extremely difficult okay so you you mentioned do you mean when they're in key stage three and they're like they're in in mixed ability groups that can be a problem is that what you think no i th i think i think both really i think um okay. there's a massive there's a massive debate to set or not to set in um in schools i mean you you can look at it on both side of the of the picture really um there's a lot of um there's a lot of fear for schools to stay within sets and mixability groups work for some schools but they they don't work for others and i think it depends on on why why they choose i think for SEN learners having a mixed group mixed ability group groups in a big class is harder for them and it depends on the level of support that they get for example is there a ta in the room who is able to to meet the lear learner's needs and has the teacher got those accessibility strategies to be able to support them through high quality first teaching right so i i, I would agree in my experience i think it it often does come down to the specific school and the specific classes and the students and what works for those people. And again, if 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 anyone has any any insight to this that they'd like to share, um, please feel free to text because I've got some strong opinions. <laughs> I have some strong opinions about setting and um, class sizes. And I mean, let's 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 talk about the class sizes first because there's there's only so much schools can do, and there's nothing a class teacher can do about that because it, it really does all come down to money and funding and budget. Because if you, if I mean, I I once had a, a colleague who I have immense personal and professional respect for, try to convince us in a department meeting. This was many years ago that you know all this all the all the studies all the research show shows that class sizes make no difference and i'm sat there thinking like lady no difference to what my mental health my workload <laughs> like what are you talking about the the relationships i can build with the students how much attention i can pay to them indi individually like if you're measuring by exam results i still don't believe you but like again please show me the studies and i'll put my hands up if i'm wrong but in every other sense of course class sizes make an enormous difference to like to the kids present and to the to the teacher i know i can do a better job when there are fewer students in the class i know that that's that is a fact about my life so class sizes are so important on so many levels but unless we have the funding to increase staff and uh school sizes and build more schools then then that's never going to change is it so it would I feel like that that particular point we probably would agree on, but there's there's not much point debating it unless we're debating it in front of number ten. So um, that's immensely frustrating, and especially if you're a class teacher and you're standing and looking around, and every single seat is filled in a thirty-two seat classroom, and you're just thinking, 
this literally could not get any worse. It's not even talking about who the kids are and what their needs are. This is like, we're at max capacity. We can barely move in here. I can't even get to the kids in the back corner, let alone go over and like on a regular basis and check their work and, and ask them questions and check their understanding and assure they're supported. Like it's just, it, it really is just too much. And I will always believe that. And I will always, always say that schools need to do absolutely everything they can to shrink class sizes. But there's only like once it's set, it's set. And there's nothing a class teacher can do. So moving on, um, what you you did mention as well, and this is this is again almost pointless because the average class teacher has has little say, but a bit more more say in this than class sizes, the sets. So, oh, um, okay. I've I have worked in schools that have different systems to this. I've worked in places that set year seven students immediately based on uh, primary school and and SAT results. Um, That doesn't work. (laughs) I've worked in places that set after October half term, you know, after the year sevens do a baseline assessment. That was a bit better. I've worked where in a, in a school in a year when we set them after Christmas that was better still because we knew them better and, and, you know, it was a more holistic, well-informed judgment. I've worked in a few schools that have mixed ability year seven and then set the students from year eight onwards. And in my personal experience, that is a better way to do it if you're going to set is to, to let them have year seven because there's such a, there's such a dip between primary and secondary school and everyone needs to settle and no one's doing their best <laughs> until before June anyway, and just give everyone, you know, that settling period and then, and then go from there. Um, but do you, do you think, cause obviously different subjects do this different ways and certain subjects just don't set at all because they're, they're taught in, in um, subjects, and and we're we're obviously talking about secondary. This has absolutely no bearing on on the average primary classroom. So, from a secondary SEN point of view, do you think? And this is a stupid question because everyone's so different. But like, how do you think setting would affect SEN students? Like, let's assume like year eight and year nine, key stage three. Forget your seven for a second. Is is what are the benefits and drawbacks of setting for for year eight and year nine in your experience? So for set groups um, for key stage three, I think that having mixed ability groups would be in an ideal world fine if teachers were given the resources to be able to support them to differentiate accordingly to to meet the learner's ability i think where the the real impact is at key stage four with um with setting groups to be able to support those learners um, based on attainment however i work in a school currently where we do have um set for key stage three and i teach all the range of students and it does work mm-hmm. however when you have a as you would say bottom year nine group and that whole thing about mindset of well i'm in bottom group and therefore you know i've been put in this class because of this 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 and this and it could be based on behavior it could be based on um you know needs uh, literacy needs and things like that but then when it comes to SEN high needs groups, I've got um, a high needs groups in year eight and year 10. And the class sizes are, you know, eight and mm-hmm. and five in one of them. And though mm-hmm. the really small classes and those needs for those learners are all met because everything is tailored to their needs and they are mm-hmm. getting the most support and it's how you look at it really on in different in different ways if you look at a mixed yeah. ability group um 
in my last school, I taught mixability uh, year, year nine, 10 and 11 for English. And in some respects, it worked really well for the lower attaining students because they were allowed to be stretched and challenged and they were supported by the learners in, in the class. But then top set, as you called the top higher achieving students in that class, were they being stretched and challenged enough? And I think it's having that, um, you know, support and adequate techniques to support those students. But if you've got a class of 30 of them, then it could be really difficult to meet to meet everybody's needs. And how do we go yeah. about doing that? And that's why I and think that's, sets that's... do work for Key yeah. Stage 4, I really do, because then you know um, the attainment of the students and the ability but also literacy um has a major factor for all of these because if we have students with reading ages of seven eight years old and they have to yeah. access the curriculum which is 16 years old to be able to even read proficiently and to be able to do mm -hmm. that if you've got mixed ability groups then they're going to really struggle struggle to be able to you know succeed so it's mm -hmm. how you're able to adapt to meet those learners on a level and if you do have those sets then it is a lot easier to yeah. to do that to be able to pitch it at a certain point that obviously you stress and challenge and then you have to um adapt to meet the needs of all of those learners but yeah, it's, it's a really hard one to set or not to set. And I think schools sometimes have a fear of, you know, setting, but also contrastingly have a fear of having mixability groups. I think, you know, um, it's kind of trial and error in, in, in some respects with that. Yeah, I and I do think it is one of those things that needs to be left up to the individual school to decide. I'm yeah. just thinking of all of like my current experiences like I'll stand in the middle of one of my key stage three classes and you've got kids who barely speak in English or you know can't write in English and then you've got kids who you know you look at them and you see what they what they write and how they think and what they say and you're like oh you you have like every hope of getting nines in in language and lit at, at GCSE and and it, it but if you're if I can't push you if I can't you know uh, model those type of responses because I'm having to model to the middle and then do like an extension and a scaffold. If I can't push you in that way, you're not going to get there. It's a, it's a very, it's the rare student. It's a very small percentage of students who will be able to, to take that, what they're given from what they're given that's pitched in the middle and make it into a nine on their own or take that initiative or, or do their research or, or study enough or learn enough or practice enough on their own time. Like it's just, it's such a relative small number of students in a comprehensive school, but that the, the percentage that would be getting seven saints and nines would be so much bigger if they were all in one class <laughs> and I could show them all how it's done and really, really push them in that regard. And you just, you literally physically cannot do that when they're in the same class as students who cannot or will not string a sentence. And I can complain about this all day, but I'm constantly reminded about, you know, history. History has a lot of the same skills um, and similar skills humanities do to, to what we do in English. And they, in every school, as far as I'm aware, they're always mixed ability. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but in my experience, history teachers have always taught mixed ability classes. I don't know how they do that. And maybe there needs to be a little bit more, um, you know, cross-curricular observation going on. Like, I would be really, really interested in some CPD that looks at, you know, matching up subjects that aren't, you know, obviously none are the same as the other, but that have similarities in that regard, like practical subjects with practical subjects and, and um, kind of language skills-based subjects with, with similar subjects and, and, seeing how teachers in in those subjects work and how they support students in their classroom and are able to somehow magically differentiate for everyone or at least convince themselves that they're doing it in a way that's in the best interest of anyone because I I've been doing this for 14 years and I'm still like actually today was a good day to be fair Friday 
stood in my classroom on at least two occasions looking around me going, this is carnage. I, like, I cannot, I could, I could spend six hours preparing differentiated resources. I could, I could do everything I, I physically can do, but in that, in that 50 minute lesson, I cannot, it is physically impossible for me to do everything that each one of these 31 students needs me to do to push them to reach their potential. Like I, I can't do it. You're, I feel like we're constantly playing this game of, of either, oh, this is, this is not good enough, but this is the best I can do or sacrificing someone. And you're either sacrificing the top end or you're sacrificing the, the, the less able students. And I just feel like something always has to give. And, and this, maybe this is just the fundamental flaw with, with the education system, but I'm, I'm getting really tired of it. (laughs) It's, I just feel like, I just feel like I stand in the classroom and it's like, this is not what I'm here for. I'm failing every single one of you 31 young people because I'm not doing anything properly because it's so hard. It's so incredibly hard. And if you, if you group similar abilities together and don't do it based on stupid things like exactly what you said em like sometimes kids end up in those bottom sets because of behavior well that's the wrong reason they should be in those smaller classes because they need more support to access the material if their issue is they're throwing glue sticks around that's a separate problem they shouldn't be there um (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean like i feel like sets I, i genuinely feel like sets are the way forward i will die on this hill provided that the sets are are created with you know with using the right criteria and that kids aren't put in sync classes um because they've been throwing glue sticks and if a student who maybe is a little bit more able but needs to be in that smaller class they they should go in the smaller class like they're you're doing it for the student you're putting them in a particular class for that student's particular needs and to support them i feel like as long as that's the logic behind it i am 100% on board. So so we've talked about class sizes, which we have no control over. Um, setting, which is usually a, a, a school-wide or at least a, or a department policy. So um, I'm, I don't have any authority within my department. It's not my call to make. Um, if we're not, if we don't, if we can't control those things, what should we be focusing on, I think is my next question. So um, oh, and we've got some messages as well. So as soon as we come back, I'm going to hear from you, um, about your thoughts of what the average, <laughs> the average classroom teacher who has zero control over any of these things can do, um, that might make a bit of a difference. And I'm going to read a text that we've just got from, from a TA, which I think will be insightful as well. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit EatonX.com to find out more. Okay, so before we come back to M, because I just went on a bit of a rant there about um, my appreciation for well thought out class sets. Um, We have a text from Kieran. So Kieran says, I work as a TA in my school's SEN department. So thank you so much for for texting in, Kieran. This year, we introduced maths and English nurture classes for year seven and eight, which are classes of max six students per class. Now, I've, my last school has done this as well. There was a, 
Shocker, there was a funding issue, which meant that we couldn't keep it up for year eight, I think, or year nine. One of them we had to, they had to, I was kind of leaving at the time, so I wasn't listening to their plans for next year. But um, they had to, they had to have fewer nurture classes than they wanted to. But this is something that my last school did as well. And it, it was, I've, I've taught those nurture classes and it is, it's so good to have those kids that have those particular needs in one particular room. So Kieran says, these nurture classes have enabled these students to have that extra one-on-one support and their assessment scores have shown that it helps both SEND kids and non-SEND kids who are still struggling. You could argue that nurture is setting for the kids who are struggling. And again, I would agree with that. It's maybe not setting the entire year group, but it's taking a small number of high need students who really, for a range of reasons, need to be in a smaller setting away from the chaos of a large classroom or who need that one-to-one support for that particular subject usually maths and english sometimes science that schools do this for they have those nurture groups for for maths and english or, or core subjects and it it really allows them to work at their level without having to fight to to be heard or fight to get support the teacher can focus on those students and their individual needs and their individual learning without having to spin 32 plates at the same time and sacrifice anyone it is like honestly i would back nurture classes in in any setting that has that has students who who would benefit from it i don't and again i think the only reason i think most of the reason every school doesn't do it is funding but i think also as um as you said um earlier i think some schools are almost afraid to do this because of some sort of perceived like pushback or what it would look like or what the students would feel like or how it would impact their self-esteem like how do you think it impacts students self-esteem when they're sitting in a class and 31 people get it and they don't like do you think that doesn't impact their self-esteem i don't know so thank you karen for that um i'm getting very worked up about this i told you i have strong feelings so M, have you ever have you ever worked in a school that had had those those really small nurture groups with with any key stage students? Yeah, at the school I work at now, uh, we do. We have um, yeah nurture groups for students, and it's great. So as I was saying, um, kind of very similar to Kieran, um, we have groups of maybe maximum eight students. So I teach. A nurture group for the year eight, absolutely the most beautiful young people, um, very <laughs> yeah. lively, <laughs> very lively, keeping me. They've been some of my favorite week. classes. <laughs> they really yeah, are. They're absolutely amazing. I, I come home and I'm like, um, I've just had the the best day with my year eights. Um, yeah. Especially we're doing the art of rhetoric at the moment. Uh, Persuasion. Ah, so are we. And oh, we're um, doing it with looking at bias and you know and all their opinions and it's it's amazing and also I've got a year ten um nurture group as well. So very small class sizes, able to really tailor their needs. And I can tell you now it is exactly the same as having a class of thirty students because you are meeting those individual needs of of those students and a few strategies um, as a Senko, which I can share out for the bigger mixability classes, mm-hmm. um, I, I will share with you um, in a moment. But I am able to tailor specifically exactly what each of those children need based on their pupil passports, based on um, the gaps in their learning and to really sit down with detailed analysis of of their gaps and you know looking at their reading ages and their vocabulary because I've been able to have that time I've been able to have the opportunity to really get to know those students on an individual level and obviously have a fantastic rapport with them because yes they can be challenging at times like all students are doesn't matter um, Mm -hmm. what kind of students but I think that's the the biggest thing is you know, having those smaller classes is, you know, predominantly um, the massive difference. So yeah. the thing a lot is, 
was about being a Senko and kind of the problem with the word differentiation. So in the past, differentiation has been understood by giving students with SEN easier work. And so mm. they're different, less ambitious learning objectives than their peers. However, um, differentiating by outcome um, doesn't work. So instead of turning it on its head with high quality teaching and what works for um, what works for SEN students is is kind of like broken down really. So one thing that I'd say, which will probably sound um yeah we we all do that but is is our language we use and explicit instruction so for me i've come from my last school teaching predominantly key stage four and a level to teaching key stage three and it's a totally different board game with mm-hmm. working year seven so one of the biggest thing i would say when you have um a big mixability group is your seating plan is your savior because at the end of the day when you group your learners and you can have that flexible grouping and and move those learners to working with working with learners who um meet not me i'm trying to get this out of my head um working with learners and getting the students to work with the same ability or or kind of mixed ability, but kind of on the same level as each of them and pairing mm-hmm. them together. So maybe stress and challenging is a really good one. Making sure you have your SEN students in particular areas of the room that you know and having a very good relationship with your TA, TA if there is one and your mm-hmm. learning support. I think one thing that is so valuable are the... the um, other TAs and however we know that there is a recruitment crisis for in schools for TA and the lack of support there is mainly to mm-hmm. you know funding and and that but things that are quite easy to adopt in the classroom that, that I think are explicit instruction what are you asking those children to do and the way you kind of pitch a question is is really important and making sure that you are able to promote inclusion and get everybody to have a go and kind of thinking about your questioning very very carefully in how you do mm-hmm. that um is one of the approaches nobody really thinks about well am i clear enough i think one thing as a teacher for me is how clear are my explanations and model modeling and frequent checkbacks and circulating through the whole room? Um, one principle we go by at our school is it's kind of I do it and teachers modeling something and then guided practice we do it. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, if it was like I don't know in English how the use of speech marks for example in a sentence and then guided practice i would ask the class how where to show the speech marks in a sentence and then independent practice i do we do you do and all about the timing but making sure to use um small chunking clear and ambitious language i think there's nothing better than having explicit instruction and timings mm. um i don't like to to go over in terms of timings but the importance of timing within the classroom and having a timer but also giving the students um understanding kind of like cognitive and metacognition strategies so thinking about um how students are able to manage cognitive loads and understanding, mm-hmm. um, you know, how pupils are learning and developing strategies such as planning and getting them to work independently. One thing mm-hmm. I've learned as a Senko is sometimes with student self-ethic, I've got to say self-efficacy, whatever it's called. <laughs> Pick and, itself up, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you, yeah. Yeah. 
uh, being able to, you know, not give up and to actually build resilience is really important for them to be able to yeah. do things independently. And I think sometimes we need to scaffold, but then take it away, provide students yeah. with those opportunities, but not just giving the answer and actually being able to to take that away um, once they have been able to do that. So, for example, sentence starters or, you know, being able to map out the component of a task and to be able to then think back and go, well, my teacher's modelled this, so then I'm going to actually be able to do this instead of just, you know, going, oh, I can't do this, can we do that together? And I think providing, you know, breaking down a task into smaller steps so the student can achieve will be able to, to do that. And I think by, you know, making it easier for students to provide, you know, the, the vocabulary that's needed, what is the meaning of this vocabulary, how is it used, but also applying it to real life context to be able to support um, SEN students or any students really is to be able to apply a word, for example, not just within the context of the lesson, but also to see it. So, for example, what um, a big one was, um, a big one for us was, um, so what does this word mean? So how could it be used outside of context? And to also to link it to their daily lives, I think is mm -hmm. a really good one. Um, and how to know when to take that scaffolding down. So to provide support, instead of setting lower expectations for students, it's all about that entitlement, isn't it? Being able to give students ambitious goals and helping yeah. them to be able to get there through that scaffolding and to figure out how to take those students through those steps and what yeah. kind of and details I feel in my personal experience yeah that's that's one of the harder things to do so if you if you're especially if you're hyper aware that oh this student you know it says this on their IEP or they their pupil passport is suggesting this or they've got this diagnosis or I know this about them or this happened last lesson or you know you you get these kind of it's almost like a paranoia it's almost like I feel a little bit like a like a parent who's scared of their child going down the the, the big hill on the like <laughs> it just it, it feel a little bit like oh, I don't want to let them go I don't are they gonna are they gonna get are they gonna get scared and, and not want to do it are they just gonna like throw their paper on the floor are they what's gonna happen like I need they need to have their sentence sentence starters they need to have this to support them they need to have this but I feel like sometimes you just have to let them fly or not <laughs> otherwise they're not gonna learn it like you have to step back at some point and knowing when to do that is is really tricky i think you're right i think it is quite hard to to know when to kind of let go sometimes as a teacher making sure you want to support those students so i had this with a, a year seven student and he's on his ip it says don't ask him questions out loud in front of the class he doesn't want to read out loud however he was so gripped by this lesson we were having about Romeo and Juliet and I said so mm -hmm. what do you think about this and there he goes yeah um I said so so what do you what do you think about this then and he goes I went if you want to you can say if you don't want to don't worry because sometimes he writes it on his whiteboard then I read it out or whatever like that but no yeah. he was happy he was um you know if students are passionate about things and the they want to to be able to, I think, sometimes giving them the opportunity to, instead of scaring them off sometimes by, you know, not giving them a voice, it, it can yeah. be detrimental. And I think it just depends on the actual situation. More than happy mm -hmm. to just chat away and absolutely loved it. So, but normally he would sit there, pen down, you know, just focusing on what he's doing. But I said, what do you think? Do you want to share? And he goes, yeah. I was like, oh. amazing. And that was one of his targets. So I think yeah, I it depends well, on the rapport with that learners. You know, it depends Definitely. on the rapport with the learners as well.
And Kieran's just sent another text in. So Kieran says, I had a student in a Spanish class today who beforehand we would never cold call for answers in class as they have severe ASD. Today, however, they put their hand up to answer a question. And even when they got one bit wrong, they went back and corrected themselves, which I can imagine is massive progress. I think when it comes to goals with students, both SEN and non-SEN students, it's important to remember that they will grow and change and progress alongside their classmates. And of course they will. I mean, things that are written on their people passports are, are not, like they're not written in stone. Kids kids grow, kids try, everybody grows and changes and develops. And I think we have to be, not, not go against, I'm not saying ignore the IEPs or the people passports, but be willing to allow them to to develop in their, in their own national, natural way and not not inadvertently kind of hold them back because they have X, Y, or Z diagnosis or because the people passport from last term says maybe do this. Like if the, if the student shows that they're willing to, to put themselves out there or to try something new or to, to, to attempt something without the previously required scaffold, then it's our job to support them to do that, you know, if we can do it when there's 31 other kids in the room. So, yeah, yeah I would agree with you. I mean, they are yeah. like gold dust, um, to be fair, to get that um, that kind of like basic knowledge about what they need. Yeah. But then it um, obviously can be adapted all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think adaptability is super important um, just in obviously yeah. teaching in general, working with kids in general. Adaptability is key. Um, and just because a student you know has a diagnosis or is quote-unquote low ability that doesn't that that shouldn't change so um we are at the end of our show so thank you so much kieran for for your um messages your your texts in from the point of a ta always appreciated and thank you so much em for coming on and, and discussing your experiences and how that's informed your teaching practice there's lots of uh useful advice there and i will take any chance i get to rant about sets and nurture groups, any chance at all. So thank you, thank you for providing that tonight. <laughs> and I hope all of our listeners have a uh, lovely um, almost midnight and a wonderful rest of the week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.